Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, and I am here with a special and unconventional off-season free agency wrap-up. So, Scott and I, about two weeks ago, a couple of days before the draft, recorded a draft preview and a free agency primer, and we dropped the draft preview right before the draft, and by the time the dust had settled on the NBA draft, before the next day was even over, the Hawks had already traded away Dwayne Dedman and had a deal in place with Danilo Gallinari. So the news for the Hawks and free agency dropped so fast and changed so much that it made the podcast that we originally recorded seem basically obsolete. So what we've done is we've gone back, pulled some of the highlights, and I'm going to go back and actually assess some of the moves the Hawks did make while also sharing with you the clips of what we predicted the Hawks might do. So again, this will be a little bit unconventional, but this is kind of a mixture of a recap and grading of the Hawks moves and allowing you to see some of the predictions and directions we hoped that the Hawks might go this offseason. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Title Run Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay, joined by my buddy Scott the Status Assassin for our second part of the Hawks offseason breakdown where we look at NBA free agency. Just to give you a little bit of a primer, the Hawks have the most cap space of any team projected for the 2021 season at $43 million. And, of course, in typical Atlanta fashion, we get the worst free agent class in, like, five years. Right, Scott? Oh, not even just that, right? We get the, you know, insanely lower cap number than expected year, too, right? It was expected that the cap would be much, much higher for 2021. Obviously, you had the whole COVID thing and lost revenue, and that's actually kind of shot the cap for, I don't know, 2021 to at least 2023. So. What a time to have money. All of a sudden, the amount of money you're allowed to spend arbitrarily gets lowered. The owners secretly rejoice and publicly say, oh, no, it's so bad. Let's start by setting the stage. Scott, what do you feel like are some of the Hawks' needs going into this free agency? And we'll do this rapid fire. So give me like a real quick list of their top needs. Well, first thing, about eight NBA basketball players. That's the first need. Yeah, you need a whole lot of them. Um, you don't need a primary creator point guard, mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily need a center or mm-hmm. even a four. You yeah. just need twos and threes, wings, 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 and a backup, and a backup point, point guard. That's what you need. Yeah, we're in agreement. So, backup point guard is probably where I'm starting. Well, I say that. No, no, that's not true. Backup point guard, and when we talk about wings, we agree we want guys that can bomb. Would you disagree? Do you have any disagreement with that? Yeah, you want guys that sh- can shoot and you want guys that can play defense. Obviously, everybody wants guys that can do both of those things, but that's not always possible in the, the free agent setting. So, so, Scott, you feel like the Hawks' needs are shooting and defense, which I, all, which I think you said those are the things that every team needs. I'm actually at a point where I'm okay with the Hawks signing at least one guy who plays no defense but does nothing and does nothing but just bomb threes. Now, granted, I'm okay with that if he's really, really good at it and if he's the right positional fit to, like, Davis Bertans. He's got to be put in the backcourt with a front – he's got to – excuse me. He's got to be placed in the front court with another player that can actually guard fours or wings because Bertans cannot. 
But if you're going to get a high volume shooter, dude, I mean, he's shooting 10 threes a game at like 40%. That's like Steph Curry efficiency. I'm okay with the Hawks signing one guy that is, yeah, like you said, can just bomb it from three. And I'm okay with signing one guy on the wing who just defends Mm -hmm. and cannot shoot or can hardly play. I mean, you know, yeah. Same with like Bretons, right? It's if he's the worst defender in the league, then sure, like yeah, signing yeah, a shooter yeah. probably doesn't work. But and that's if the guy's the, the worst offensive player in the league, then it doesn't matter that much if they're good on defense. Um, but yeah, and so we'll get into some of these guys. We have guys like uh, Chris Dunn or Derek Jones that are out there mm-hmm. that are just defense guys. Ironically, this is almost exactly what the Hawks did. They went out and got Danilo Gallinari and Bogdan Bogdanovich, who are two primarily offensive players. Neither of them are civs on defense, but they are paid to play offense. They are both very, very good shooters. Both of them create their own shot. And then you went out and got a player in Chris Dunn, who is an elite, high-level perimeter defender and doesn't give you a lot on the offensive end. So it was interesting that the Hawks actually go out and do exactly what we talked about and sign a couple of players that had very, very specific roles on either end of the floor. So let's start with the let's start with the backcourt. Just lots of options. Uh, obviously, the top of the list, guys like Fred Van Fleet, who's going to cost a lot of money. Um, I think you have here projected for a $22 million contract, which to me sounds about right. Uh, Goran Dragic, who will not be nearly as expensive, but is probably a little overqualified to be just simply a backup point guard. He's somebody that could play with Trey Young, though, which is very, very attractive. A uh, Shabazz Napier, who's actually gone from being overrated coming out of college to maybe slightly underrated now, put mm-hmm. together a Saudi career. Trey Burke, who, again, was overrated coming out of college and has actually become a very, very solid bench guard now. And then, of course, bringing back Jeff Teague. And for the Drogic and Burke and Napier options, these guys are not expensive. You're talking about 7 to $12 million probably for any of those. And Jeff T, you could probably get for less than that. Okay, so uh, some shooting guards, combo guards. Uh, Anthony Melton, who's just a, you know, a solid, solid uh, bench guard. Bogdan Bogdanovich out in Sacramento, who I think is about to get the bag. Uh, I think he's about to get broke off and paid by them. Uh, Chris Dunn, who I love, would love to get him here with Trey Young because I've watched what he's done to Trey Young, and he gives Trey Young about as many problems as any point guard. That's not Patrick Beverly. Um, Alec Burks, Malik Beasley, Contavious Caldwell Pope, and Denzel Valentine are a few other options on your list for shooting guards. Um, out of those, who is realistic and who do you actually like as a fit? I think Melton is a good young player. He's 22 years old. He's very much a combo guard. So if you just kind of added him to – what you already have in Trey and her already, and you kind of always play with two of those three on the floor, that seems to work out really great. Hmm. And again, he's 22. He's the same age, basically, same as your other yeah. core. Okay. So that really works out. That being said, you probably will have to overpay him because he's 22 years mm-hmm. old hitting free agency, mm-hmm. which means you're only paying for good years of him, right? There's no scenario where you're paying for his like past his prime years. Um, I'm with you. I also really like Chris Dunn as somebody, you know, we talked about adding somebody who is just a shooter or just a defensive player. He's that just a defensive player. I I listed here by like the, you know, the traditional point guard, shooting guard, et cetera spots. I listed him on shooting guard because he's kind of a two guard defensively and that's what you'd be paying him for. Um, He's not a point guard offensively. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about 
in our, our last episode, you could draft a, a combo guard or a point guard type player that could share the ball with Trey Young. That's not what you would get with Chris Dunn. No, no. Right? He was drafted as a point guard. If you play him and Trey Young together, Trey Young initiates the offense 100%. And there's a so, reason the Bulls have drafted multiple point guards since him. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And that's not um, just the fact that the Bulls are an incompetent organization. Yeah. So those are the guys I really like at the quote shooting guard or the combo guard spots. Um, at the point guard spot, I think, you know, somebody like Shabazz Napier would be an awesome get if he was okay with being a backup point mm-hmm. guard. Yeah. Now, then that's part of the catch with, you know, finding a backup point guard. The Hawks are looking for someone who is solid and capable. Well, if they're solid and capable, they're probably not a rookie, so you can't just draft it. Mm-hmm. And if they're solid and capable and they're in their late 20s or early 30s, they're probably trying to hop on to a playoff contending – or not a playoff contending, a yeah. championship, championship contending team. So, in an ideal world – Add Shabazz Napier, and that really helps a lot this year. Practically speaking, I don't know if that'll happen. But Melton and Chris Dunn are a little bit more feasible. They're younger. They fit closer to the timeline. Um, You could overpay those guys intentionally and still have them around in two, three, four years. You'll notice who is not on the list for either of us, and that is one Rajon Rondo. And... Several reasons for that. A, on the court, Rondo is now at this point a non-shooter, which he's always been, and a below-average defender. He is still an extraordinarily high-level passer, and he has never stopped doing that. But Rondo went from being a guy that was a legitimately elite defender early in his career to a guy that was overrated to a guy that now is adequately rated as a bad defender. He, he's not good on defense. Now... He also had a stage of his career where he went to Sacramento and Dallas and was a malcontent in Sacramento and then went to Dallas and was just bad. Like, there's no reason for it. It just like he had lost it. He just wasn't good in Dallas and there wasn't really a reason for it. And he did a lot to rehabilitate his image last year in L.A. when a lot of people, including myself, thought he was done. He goes down there in the bubble, plays out of his mind at both ends of the court, shot the ball well, played Old school Boston Celtics Toronto defense. I mean, there are times where he absolutely embarrassed Jamal Murray in uh, that series against the Nuggets. And Jamal Murray is a very, very good offensive player. And it was like, why don't we get this Rondo all the time? And obviously, the reason for that being, I don't know that Rondo's capable of playing like that all the time. This is by far the signing that graded the lowest for both Scott and I. He probably put it around a C minus. I probably put it closer to a C. And the reason that the Rondo signing is so hard to evaluate is that Rondo on the court is not a great fit besides Trey Young. He doesn't shoot well. He's not a good defender anymore. And in particular, Rondo is bad in the regular season. He is not good. He doesn't play hard. He doesn't play defense. And so the issue for me is that Rondo and Trey Young can't play together. Uh, if you play them together, you better put all defensive stoppers on the on that court with them. And if you do that, who's going to score? But, I mean, Rondo is a guy that needs to be surrounded with shooters. So even if you're playing with Trey, you have to play them with other shooters. But if you're playing them with, you know, DeAndre Hunter, Onyeke Okongwu, and Cam Reddish, well, you've got good defenders, but that's not exactly elite shooting. So it's problematic for me. The other issue is that Rondo can't really play alongside Chris Dunn because, again, 
Dunn is a terrible shooter, 26% three-point shooter last year. I mean, Rondo, you know, will hover around 35 when he's on, but, I mean, there's no shooting on that second unit. So, in the locker room, I know he's got a reputation as being great. Uh, his teammates at the last few stops have raved about him. He was loved in Chicago. He was loved in L.A. But you're paying $7.5 million for a guy that is going to be average to below average in the regular season and probably good in the playoffs. And it's just hard when you look around and see guys like a DJ Augustine who gets $6 million. He's honestly at this point a better backup point guard than Rondo. He can shoot. He's probably as good, if not a slightly better defender, and he can run an offense. He might be even overqualified to be playing with Trey Young. But when you look around and see that he got $6 million and he's a better player than Rondo and he's younger, and you're like, we couldn't have gone to spend our money on somebody like that. And so the Rondo signing, I know some people will be excited about it. It was one that was very questionable for me, and I just hope that all the stuff about his leadership and his ability to perform the playoffs does pan out and does make our team better. But that was a signing that to me was very, very questionable. Now, having said that, he is probably still better than the options we ran out there last year. Um, he is a better pass than Jeff Teague. Both of them are bad on defense, and he's really good in the playoffs. So I think you could say that overall that might still be an improvement over Jeff Teague, and it is cheaper than what you were paying Teague last year. So even though it's probably better than what you had, I'm still not sure that it gives you what we were really hoping for out of the backup point guard spot. Rondo is going to be 36 when he finishes this contract, and it's just hard to imagine that a 36-year-old point guard is going to be worth slightly above market value at the backup position. Maybe he'll defy the odds, but, I mean, there's only one Chris Paul. And you heard us mention in there Bogdan Bogdanovich as a possible option as a shooting guard, and the reason we didn't discuss him a whole lot more is because, honestly, I thought he was going to be way out of the Hawks' price range. I was picturing Bogdanovich getting something like four years, $88 million from the Kings because he has essentially overtaken Buddy Heald on their pecking order at shooting guard. By the end of the year, he had started. By the end of the year, he had made his way into the starting lineup and Heald was actually coming off the bench. But I just didn't think the Hawks were going to be able to afford him. So when the Hawks get him for 4 and 72, which if you had told me that at the beginning of free agency that he was available for that, I would have said, sign me up. Forget Davis Bertons, forget. Anthony Melton, go get me a guy like that because he is a big-time scorer. And when you are talking about Bogdanovich's game, he is essentially the player that you hope Kevin Herter becomes by age 25. Now, Bogdanovich is 28. He came over to the NBA from overseas at, I think it was like age 24. And he is what you hope Kevin Herter becomes. He is a above-average shooter that can create his own shot. He's actually a very, very good as a mid-range shooter as well. And he's a good secondary playmaker. So like all the things that you're hoping Kevin Herter develops to become, to me, if he hits a ceiling, Bogdanovich is what he is. So if the Rondo signing is a C for me and probably like a D for Scott, this is like a B plus, A minus for both of us because value, his age fits at 28. He's on the older side, but he's still going to be in his prime during this next few years for the Hawks timeline where they're trying to win now. He is a player that could be the fourth best player on a championship team. That's not hard. It's not hard to picture him in Tyler Hero's spot on the Miami Heat. Or could he play in Danny Green's spot in the Lakers? Like that's actually reasonable to picture. And you're getting great value along with the talent. So this was one of my favorite signings. I gave it a B plus. Um, I think it was a killer signing. I think it's gonna make the Hawks a lot better as he slides right into the starting shooting guard spot. And Kevin Herter, whom I really like, 
goes into his rightful place on the bench. And as much as I like her, and I know a lot of you do too, I'm going to ask you this question and you need to answer it honestly. How many playoff teams last year could Kevin Herter start for? When you think about it in that context, you realize that Kevin Herter is probably the seventh best player or eighth best player on a playoff team. So with, with the fact that he is going to the bench increases the Hawks' depth, gives them more depth at shooting guard, which they lacked last year, I think all around this is just a great signing for the Hawks. So summarizing my backcourt grades, I give the Chris Dunn signing an A. I give the Bogdanovich signing a B plus, and I give the Rondo signing a C. So overall, a lot of improvement in the backcourt, but I'm still worried about the value of the Rondo contract. Two for 15, he's going to be 36 when he finishes the contract. I just wonder, is I just don't know if it's going to work out, even if we get playoff Rondo. So with that said, here are our predictions for possible front court options for the Hawks heading into the 2020 offseason. A couple other front court options. Uh, Joe Harris, who I love. Uh, Justin Holiday, good shooter. Davis Bertons, we've already talked about. Derek Jones Jr., who is probably slightly overrated at this point, but he's a good defensive player and athletic kind of com- kind of sort of combo forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Jeremy Grant, who made himself a lot of money with the way he played uh, this year for the Denver Nuggets. So, and the front court options. Who's somebody you would target or be interested in? Yeah, so Ingram won't be there. Hayward and DeRozan won't be there. Even if they were, they're probably not that good of fits just because of their age. Um, I think something like Joe Harris and Justin Holiday, those guys that might be more like $10 yeah. million dollars for one year or for two years, and maybe you bump that up a little bit to convince them to come play for a team that's hoping to make the playoffs rather than hoping to make the finals. And, you know, we already mentioned Bertans and Derek Jones, who are very, very different players, but both, yeah. I think, fit pretty well for the Hawks. Um, you know, we have Jeremy Grant. He's probably going to get paid a whole bunch. He's going to get, he's gonna get overpaid. Yeah, so he is a, a good player, and he's not so old that he doesn't, like, fit the timeline for the Hawks. But he, I would prefer Bertans or Jones because both of those guys are going to be kind of role players. And – they have very clear roles, right? It would be here is your shooting specialist, here is your defensive specialist. So, look at those. I think my option would probably out of those sign would be if you can afford Davis Bertans, who's probably going to be really hard to get away from the the Washington Wizards. They seem to really want to resign him, which means you're going to have to right. really overpay him. He said if you're paying Davis Bertans twenty twenty two million, I ha- that's a Oh man, I don't know about that. That just that just reeks of Kent Bazemore all over again. And that's part of the problem, right? With free agency, you're not value shopping. No, there's not a true. lot of value to be had on free agency, especially not if you're trying to get starter level players, mm-hmm. right? Now you can find value in free agency for role players, like non-starting role players, and you can find value if you're getting a Hall of Fame kind of guy because they're capped by a max contract but like low-end starters you're not going to get good value part of it is you just have to be okay with that we have all this money it doesn't help you win if you don't sign a starter because they're not good value right yeah Um, but what you don't want is you don't want to hand somebody maybe like davis Bertans a four-year 88 million dollar deal right because that's going to cost you 
in two, three, four years is going to be a problem. Whereas like some of the other guys we talked about, like D'Anthony Melton, you know, the guys that are much younger, you could actually hand them a longer deal like that. Like Derek Jones, it's going to be okay. Because if you hand Derek Jones a four-year deal, well, there's a chance that he actually outplays that in year three or four. Again, you'll notice that conspicuously absent from that list was Danilo Gallinari, who the Hawks did end up signing on a three-year, $61 million contract with only $5 million guaranteed in the third year. So um, Gallinari is a 32-year-old elite offensive power forward because power forward, you know, in the NBA is not really a high scoring position for a lot of teams. I mean, you have your Anthony Davises of your world, but I mean, essentially, if you average 18 to 21 as a power forward in the NBA, you're one of the elite scorers in the NBA at that position. So Gallinari is an 18, 19 point a game scorer last couple of years for playoff teams in the Clippers and the Thunder. He's much more than just a standstill shooter, although he is very good at that. He is like an elite pick and roll player, uh, especially as a pick and pop guy. He can take two dribbles, hit a shot with a guy in his face. He actually has a post-up game. He's not awful on defense. I mean, he is probably a top 100 player, and he's very, very good. So he makes a great fit offensively for the Hawks because he can space the floor on the wings. He is not a great fit defensively because even though he's 6'10 and roughly 230 pounds, he doesn't have the foot speed to guard wings, which means that while you can play him at the three offensively, he really can't be in lineups with John Collins at the four for long stretches of time. Now, if you want to slide Collins over to the five and play Gallinari at the four, that's tenable if you have other good defenders on the wing out on the floor. But Collins and Gallinari as a four-three combination isn't going to work, especially with Trey Young at point guard. So that's just not going to work. But the reason that we didn't discuss Gallinari more is essentially the same thing we said about Bogdanovich. I was picturing Gallinari, even though he's 32, getting something like three years and $72 million. And again, it's just it's more than the Hawks can afford because he's a good player, but he's not an elite player. He's a guy that probably won't be an all-star, but he's really, really good. Again, like I said about Bogdanovich, Gallinari could be the third or fourth best player on a championship contender. I mean, he's that good. And so... To hear that we got him for 3 and 60 with the final year not being guaranteed when he's going to be 35 years old and he has a very, very detailed injury history, I was blown away. Love the move. Can't give it an A just because looking at his age and his injury history and his fit with John Collins, I don't think you can give it an A for that reason. But as far as the talent and the value you got, I mean, you paid basically market value or maybe even slightly below market value for his skill set. And I feel the same about Bogdanovich. Hear that number, and it's a large number with a lot of guaranteed money. But for what their skill set is in today's NBA, I mean, crap. We gave sixteen million to Kent Bazemore. He's not nearly half the player both these two players are. So I just feel like when you had the value with the talent, I gave this move a solid B plus. Uh, you could probably lower it down to B if you really don't like the fit. But that's just too much talent for too good of a value for me to give it any less than that. Now. I also need to mention the trade that happened right after the draft with us moving out Dwayne Dedman because it did bring in another wing player and Tony Snell. Snell is a 40% shooter from three for the last several years for everybody he's played for. He is just a bench wing. He is not terrible on defense. Uh, he's you know not great on defense, but he's you know an average to slightly better than average defender, and he can shoot. And so that just gives you yet another option off the bench, a wing that can shoot. You remember the last couple of years, those guys were people like 
Justin Anderson, Vince Carter. Those are the guys you're bringing in to be your shooters, and he's a better shooter than those people. Probably not as good on defense as Justin Anderson, but much better than Vince Carter. So he's a solid piece off your bench. And the last piece we have to talk about in addressing the front court is, of course, the addition of Onyeke Okongwu. Okongwu is a very, very athletic and mobile defensive center. He honestly has a skill set very, very similar to Clint Capella. He is like an elite roll man on pick and roll. He is a fantastic finisher, the kind of guy that can take a pick and roll um, from outside the paint, take two dribbles, slither through a double team and finish. He's a very good finisher. His offensive skill set reminds me a little bit of John Collins in college before John Collins developed his pick and roll. Let me let me let me walk that back. His post game, his footwork, his ability to finish in traffic, um, his body control reminds me a lot of John Collins. I'm not sure he's quite the leaper Collins is, but it's at least a discussion. He is that kind of vertical spacer, and he is a good free throw shooter, which gives you hope about his ability to shoot long term. He doesn't he didn't, he didn't shoot hardly at all at USC. But the free throw percentage and the form he displayed on his jump shot gives you hope that he probably will be able to shoot at some point. But he kind of made Dwayne Dedman expendable because he projects to be a much better player than Dwayne Dedman probably by next year. And so there wasn't really a reason to keep Dwayne Dedman on. And so he was traded for Tony Snell. And Okungwu, to me, is an interesting piece because he could legitimately give you a defensive anchor with that second unit. Uh maybe even better than Deadman could have given. And, you know, rookies are generally bad on defense, but one of the big things about Okongwu is that he supposedly has just an astronomically high basketball IQ. And when you watch his college tape, like he was able to switch on pick and rolls and recover when people blew their assignments. And he just seems like he's going to be one of those rare rookies that's not terrible on defense um, early on in their career. And so if that's the case, you, you plug him in on that second unit with – Whatever mixture of Herder, Reddish, Snell, Rondo, Hunter, Dunn, and you have a backline anchor that is a constant lob threat, and you put shooters at those other two or three spots. So I really like, I really did not like this pick initially, with my logic being that the Hawks already have three other centers in the roster. Three of them are under 26, and have the exact same skill set, which and two of them have the same skill set in Okongwu and Capella, who are basically going to be pick and roll lob threats. And so I didn't like it at first. Finding out a little bit more about his defense capabilities and then seeing us immediately trade away Deadman to clear playing time for him, I like the move a lot more. So I gave this move a B plus. Um I just think that when Capella's contract is over, he's gonna slide right over and be a Capella-like player. He's already a Capella-like player. And I think this was a good move to solidify the Hawks' front court. And again, obviously, he's going to fit the timeline with Trey, John Collins, Herder Reddish, Hunter, and all those other guys. So with that said, let's take you back and wrap up with some final thoughts on what we do not want to see out of the Hawks as they move forward in this rebuild. Here's what we can't do. And this is the one thing we can't do. We have You said this. We have lots of options for how to make this team better. Mm-hmm. Here's one thing you can't do. You cannot mortgage the future for a win-now season. I don't believe that. Do not trade future assets for a player that's going to get you to the sixth or eighth seed for this one year, and you have nothing to show for it after this season. 
That's why I'm against like the Drew Holiday trade or a Oladipo trade, mm-hmm. barring knowing what you're giving up. Right. If it's what I assume it is, I'm against those kind of moves. I'm all for, like you said, moves that, that are long-term. When I say long-term, right now with the salary cap the way it is, probably you're not going to get nearly as many people signing those long-term four- and five-year deals. You're going to get a lot of one and twos from a lot. Now, that's not true for everybody. Like Someone like Trey Book probably like, lock me up, man. So I want to think, I guess, beyond 2021. That's, my, that's really all I'm asking. Make moves that look beyond 2021 with the goal still to be the best possible team in 2021. Right. Yeah, I don't I, think that's too much to ask. I, I want moves that look at 2021 through 2024. Yeah, I want yeah, all the free agency point. moves to sort of look at that four-year window and to pretty much weigh all four of those years fairly even. I would probably personally wait it a little bit towards the 2024 or the later years, you know, because that's when you're hoping to be making deeper playoff runs instead of hoping to be in the playoffs. Um, but it's like you said earlier, you have to get there one step at a time. You have to get to being a playoff team before you can mm-hmm. get to being at home in the playoffs before you can get to actually trying to make it to the finals. And all along this, those different steps, you know, you have to be, you have to be at step A before you can get the player that gets you to step B, right? You don't get to skip steps, which is what you're saying. It's basically yeah. don't skip steps in a rebuild. And you look at a team like the Dallas Mavericks, and I hate to make the comparison because of Luka, but they have one elite offensive engine in Luka Doncic. They have a good power forward in Chris Tapps Perzingis, who's very comparable to John Collins. They're very comparable players, and they have a lot of players that play their role as well. Tim Hardaway Jr., we know what he is. There's nothing particularly special about him. He fits his role in that team. Dorian Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba. He's a really good role player. Those are the guys you use to build a playoff roster. Yeah. If you look at their team, after you get past Luka and, you know, Chris Stapps. None of those guys are special. Right. And also, every single one of those guys was aged 26 to 30. Mm. They were, like, all right in their prime. That's, like, the best version you're getting out of a lot of those players. That team was the roster top to bottom was, you know, a win-now roster. Except J.J. Barea. <laughs> well, yeah, he didn't play, right? I thought he was coaching. Yeah. And even if you look at somebody like the Indiana Pacers, they don't have a superstar. Oladipo was really good a couple of years ago, but their best player was DeMontis Sabonis. And then you have Miles Turner, who's a good player. Malcolm Brogdon, who's a good player. I mean, they had a bunch of good basketball players. Uh, God, who's the wing they got that went nuts in the uh, – Who's the one they had that went nuts in the – Oh, yeah. He was like all the talk of the bubble. He's beef with Jimmy Butler. Why can yeah. I not remember his name? Starts the – oh, my gosh, it's going to bother me. Played in Phoenix. Why can I not remember his name? I know, because Phoenix, like, let him go, and they were – missed him so much. Oh, gosh. It was but the whole thing. he's the kind of free agent that when – T.J. Warren, good grief. Yeah. There you go. T.J. Warren. When you sign a T.J. Warren, that's not a – that's not a put you over the top move. That's a move that makes your team – a contender in the playoffs. And again, those are the moves we're looking at. So I know we're being a dead horse here, but Hawks fans, it's not going to be a sexy off season. This is one where you make the right moves instead of the splashy moves. And I really do believe that with a good draft pick and the right base, the Hawks can be set up to be a playoff team this year. That's within reach, just not at the expense of mortgages in the future. All right, folks, we're looking forward to Hawks basketball here in about um, five weeks. <laughs> can y'all believe that? Uh, which is crazy to say. So uh, this is Dave Bethay and Scott Aiken for the Title Run Podcast. 
Scott, tell the folks good night or goodbye. I always say that because we yeah. always record these at night. I gotta say, like the Hawks cap room, I'm out. <laughs> That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening.